0: Section six of Gaudium Crucis A Meditation for Good Friday by Walter Lowry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The fifth word confirmation. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things are now finished, that the Scripture might be accomplished, saith, I thirst. John nineteen twenty eight, CF Psalm sixty nine twenty one these scriptures confirmed by the cross. It is a homely woe that is expressed by this word from the cross, which St. John alone records. Such suffering as this indicates even we can understand who know not what it is to die. Yet even upon this suffering St. John does not dwell. And why should he? All the evangelists, and St. John especially, give to the story of Jesus' death a place wholly out of proportion to their brief account of his life and ministry this is proof of the high importance which the apostolic church attached to the cross it is therefore the most noteworthy that all the evangelists and especially st john refrain from any mention of suffering merely as suffering it had a higher significance for them here st john mentions the cry of thirst only to note that its consequence the giving of vinegar which the other evangelists also record was a fulfillment of Scripture. He found the same significance in the fact that the soldiers cast lots for Jesus' cloak. These are superficial coincidences. There is deeper meaning in the fact that the sacrifice of the true Paschal lamb was performed according to the prescription of the ancient ritual not a bone of it shall be broken. There is a mere verbal correspondence again in the piercing of our Lord's side but in the water and the blood which flowed therefrom, St. John discovered a profound emblem of the mission of the Messiah. How important this was in his regard, we see not only in the strong asseveration of verse 35, but in the fact that he recurs to it again in his first epistle. It was emblematic of the fact that Jesus came not like the Baptist, with only a preparatory purification by water, but as the Messiah With the water and with the blood. When St. John expressly notes the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy, they shall look on him whom they pierced, there can be no doubt that he had in mind the passage which immediately follows it. In that day there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Water is the obvious and universal symbol of purification. But the deepest symbol of purification from sin is blood, and this represents the very essence of the sacrificial idea. When the Baptist discriminates his ministry from that of Jesus and points to him as the Lamb of God, he implicitly refers to the fifty third chapter of Isaiah, the prophecy of the suffering Messiah, who by his death makes atonement for the people. It was thus that Jesus came in fulfillment of prophecy with the water of baptism he brings also the blood of atonement and the gift of the spirit hence the significance of the three witnesses the spirit and the water and the blood which agree in one witness the witness of god concerning his son who comes in fulfilment of prophecy it is thus that st john delights to find the scriptures confirmed by the event the event explained by the scriptures st john is a preeminent instance of that type of mind which delights in symbolism all christians are not so constituted there has ever been a class of common sense people who have no appreciation of the symbolical perhaps they have never been so numerous as today, and never so much inclined to condemn in others what they do not enjoy for themselves they might justly repudiate symbolism if they were right in thinking that it usurps the place of sober reason and argument but in truth symbol emblem and allegory are not argument but a play of the fancy around a fact which has already been accepted with conviction these treasures which st john gathers upon the shore of the infinite mystery be they pebbles or pearls are not proof to him or to us that jesus is the christ but once we have accepted him as lord upon deeper grounds than we can marshal before our consciousness we too find ourselves playing like children with the trifles which suggest a greater truth than we have grasped if not one sparrow falls without our father and if the very hairs of our head are all numbered the death of the messiah must have significance in every detail if only we could find it and so we build with gold silver hay stubble while well we know that the foundation though out of sight is of adamant yet for all this we are glad to observe that jesus's own scriptural proof was of a soberer sort his use of those passages of scripture which directed him in life and comfort him in death is distinguished not by ingenuity of adaptation but by depth of insight we have proof and example of this in the last chapter it is true of all his interpretations of scripture at the beginning of his ministry he reassured his own innate assurance of divine sonship and messianic vocation by appealing to that part of the prophecy of isaiah which he read in the synagogue at nazareth and expressly applied to himself the spirit of the lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor he hath sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty them that are bruised, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. If there is any moral meaning in the ancient scriptures, there is any constant providence of God over the human race. If any significance in history, this proof is cogent. To the same proof Jesus appealed again at a later period, when the Baptist, doubting in the gloom of his prison the things he had believed in the glorious freedom of the wilderness, sent his disciples to demand, Art thou he that cometh, or look we for another? Jesus did not answer in words, but in deeds. He kept the messengers with him, while he cured many of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many that were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered and said unto them, Go your way, and tell John what things ye have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, The poor have good tidings preached to them, and happy is he whosoever shall find no occasion of stumbling in me. It was in the scriptures Jesus sought and found light upon the mystery of the suffering fate which he foresaw in the path of rectitude and duty. He saw in every fate that might befall him his father's will. He had taught every son of man to pray, Father, thy will be done, as an expression for that perfect consummation which all men must desire though they know not well what it is and he himself when that good will seemed to run most counter to his own was able to say nevertheless not my will but thine be done his fate once recognized as the father's will prompt obedience even unto death was the expression of his filial consciousness and the darkness of that mystery was in a measure relieved by the very name which he had chosen to designate himself From the beginning of his ministry he had called himself the son of man this name does not as is commonly supposed emphasize humanity as expressly distinguished from divinity it lays no stress upon human origin and denotes nothing incompatible with a claim to be the son of god but it does indicate human weakness in contrast with the brute might of the bestial powers which rule the world which God destroys in order to raise his weak but elect instrument to universal domination. This is the meaning Jesus rightly read in the seventh chapter of Daniel. Therefore the sense of his weakness produced no abatement of his confidence that God was able to perform whatsoever he purposed to do through him. As a weak instrument in God's mighty hand, he came not to wrest to himself a kingdom, but to receive it. He was the passive instrument, and it is not so much signified what he might do as what might be done to him. He was thus prepared to suffer, and even to suffer death. He knew that it was not here and under earthly conditions that his kingdom was to be established, but as with the clouds of heaven before the Ancient of Days. Therefore, death, as a liberation from earthly conditions, was a preparation for his reign. He came to do his Father's will and in doing it he encountered a fate which though the expression of that will was yet conditioned and explained by the history of god's people and by the scriptures which are the record of it therefore jesus no less than his disciples was disposed to find a meaning in everything that befell him it cannot be he said that a prophet perish out of jerusalem as he approached the end he saw in his own death and in the momentary dispersion of his disciples a fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered abroad. When he repudiated Peter's effort to rescue him by force, and refrained from summoning supernatural aid, he appealed to the scripture in proof that thus it must be. He knew that his consummate performance was not to do, but to suffer. Waiting Upon God Jesus' teaching confirmed by the cross. The cross is the fulfillment and confirmation of Scripture, but it also may be regarded as the confirmation of Jesus' own teaching. I am not thinking here of the words in which Jesus foretold his death, but of the hard precepts which were sealed by the cross. Here is one whom we account the chiefest teacher of mankind, yet he himself seemed to set so small a value upon his teaching that he never wrote but once, and that was upon the ground no man knows what he wrote. The chiefest thing in his estimation was not what he said, but what he did, rather not what he did, but what he suffered. Yet in all this he would have men regard him as the teacher. It was as a teacher he first gathered his disciples about him. In the sum of all that he is, from first to last, in word and deed, we justly express by the name we have given him, the Word of God. The school of jesus preceded the church but the church is still the school of the exalted christ what jesus is to us as teacher tennyson has expressed and so the word had breath and wrought with human hands the creed of creeds in loveliness of perfect deeds more strong than all poetic thought such being the character of our teacher we utter no baffling paradox when we say that even his wonderful words are incomplete If they stand alone, and that Jesus was never so much our teacher as when he kept silence upon the cross. The words of Christ must not be separated from his life, his life cannot be separated from his death. The teaching of Christ is Christianity, but the teaching of Christ cannot be divorced from the cross. The newness of Jesus' teaching first became evident at the cross. Follow me, said Jesus, to those whom he chose out of the world. But until he had descended unto death, that he might ascend to glory, no man knew whither he led. In that path no teacher had led before. The hardest of Jesus' precepts, those particularly which commend the non-resistance of evil, are explained, and not explained away, by the cross. From the line of thought we have just been following above, it is clear that these precepts are the direct outcome of Jesus' inmost consciousness, the practical expression of his faith in God's justice, and of his confidence in God's wisdom and might. They were first of all his own rule of conduct, but he made them over unto every son of man. For whoso has this faith and maintains this confidence will not believe that God's ark is tottering, nor intrude upon his plan with the violent purposes of anger. God's plan is worked out in part by human instrumentality, and he can make even the wrath of men to serve him. But the direct and conscious instruments of his will strive not in anger, but in love. Yet strive they do, and with a godly violence. We misinterpret the meekness which Jesus exemplified and inculcates when we represent it as mere passivity or as a formal compliance with a rule. To suffer and yet forego revenge is a sign of cowardice or hypocrisy, if anger is merely dissimulated, and not rather conquered by the greater violence of love. We have already seen wherein consists the novelty of Jesus' commandment to love the brethren, but newer still is the commandment to love one's enemies, and this, though enjoined before, we see exemplified for the first time at the cross. To turn the other cheek to the smiter, to give one's coat to whoso takes one's cloak, these are hard sayings without the meekness of love they are impossible. But this word meekness, we understand it aright, is only another name for love, love in its most specifically Christian aspect. The sincerity of these precepts appears, and the hardship vanishes when we contemplate him who, with his cloak, gave his life also, and yet loved his slayers. Jesus forgave his enemies because he loved them and he loved them and could not hate because he came expressly to serve and save them like peter we are prone to ask how many times shall i forgive a brother his petty faults till seven times Jesus' word of forgiveness upon the cross forever sets at naught such calculation whoso renounceth not all that he hath saith jesus cannot be my disciple and at once we begin again with our mean and minimizing calculation. How much is all? We receive our answer at the cross. And in the same moment, in view of a death which exhibiteth to the utmost the vital vigor of love, we recognize the truth of the saying A man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. When Jesus said, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He may have had in mind some familiar proverb, or a criminal passing to his execution may have suggested and enforced the expression. But the sober sincerity of this saying was surely never appreciated until it was remembered upon Mount Calvary. Jesus employed a more familiar figure when he enjoined his disciples to bear his yoke, saying to all who are weary and heavy laden, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart in face of the fact that jesus calls upon us to learn meekness from him it is strange that we should so commonly misinterpret this word treating it as equivalent to the monkish humilitas which means lowliness and self-estimation with a true knowledge of one's self to abhor one's self as st bernard defines it this manifestly does not hit the meaning of jesus and it is his meaning we must apprehend if we would have meekness untainted with hypocrisy. With him it meant not a lowly opinion of himself, no thinking of himself at all, but the complete abstraction of self-regard, and the assumption, in actual fact, of a lowly condition. Yoke and burden are the symbols of service, and it was in the express character of a servant that Jesus appeared among men. Lowliness of outward estate is essential to the idea yet it is not this alone, nor this chiefly. in so far as it involves an attitude of mind, as St. Paul intimates that it does when he enjoins, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. It is an attitude which is the genuine and spontaneous expression of one who has accepted a humble position, the attitude of one who has renounced the ideal of mastery and embraced the ideal of service. The phrases which Jesus uses, lowly in heart, poor in spirit, indicate that as an affair of the heart it must be a service voluntarily assumed or willingly endured. The word which we translate by meekness is an Old Testament term which may equally well denote mere poverty. It was Jesus that first raised it to an affair of the heart and inculcated it as a virtue. An affair of the heart it is but not of a heart busy about its own interests, looking to its own things, but looking to the things of others. When we have rightly apprehended this conception, we shall find that the apparently preposterous injunction of St. Paul, let each esteem others better than himself, is practically possible of execution, for in reality it proposes no critical estimate of character, but the dutiful devotion which judgeth not the attitude of the true servant towards his master. This is the newest and most distinctive feature of Jesus' moral teaching, and again we note that it finds its ultimate test and confirmation in the cross. No disciple could adequately conceive what the yoke as a symbol of service might signify until he saw it identified with the cross. The world's ethical ideal at its highest is self-realization, and it is an ideal which the Christian of all men is least able to ignore, since he seeks in Jesus the Saviour of his life and finds in him the promise that he shall be blessed. Yet from the same mouth he receives the commandment of self renunciation. Jesus had a perfect perception of the paradox which lies in this ideal of service, and he himself has expressed it in the most absolute terms when he says, Every one that exalteth himself shall be humbled, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. He utters an adage which finds application and confirmation in many of the common situations of life. But when he says, Whosoever would save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life for my sake shall save it, how should we believe his saying? Did not the cross witness at once to its sincerity and to its truth? It is significant that St. Paul, who is not wont to dwell upon the personal traits of Jesus, recalls emphatically the one trait we have here been considering when he says, I beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. The meekness of Jesus was manifest in the whole of his earthly life. Yet it is characteristic of St. Paul that when, as in the second chapter of Philippians, he discourses at length upon this mind which was in christ jesus he finds it supremely exhibited in the descent from heaven to earth and finally and climactically in the cross it is an exceedingly striking fact that the commandments which jesus enjoins upon his disciples as the mere condition of discipleship not as counsels of unattainable perfection as we are fain to regard them are precisely those hard commandments which find their full exemplification only at the cross this agrees with the fact which we observe in the apostolic scriptures that wherever we are exhorted to the imitation of jesus it is not in view of the human excellencies of his character which are most nearly level with our attainment but in view precisely of those traits in which he transcended human limits and given himself over unto death everywhere it is the death of jesus the cross which is proposed for our imitation it is a wholesome example not because it is death but because it exhibits the utmost plenitude of life life flowing onward towards the cross converging upon it and persisting unchecked we must believe this is our surest argument for life beyond death if jesus had lived he lived supremely upon the cross for with him to live was to love life which exhibits in one moment such sheer abundance that it spills over its overplus cannot be about to cease but to escape to the rule that it is everywhere the sufferings of jesus which are proposed in the scriptures for our imitation there is only one notable exception that is where st john makes use of a term so general that it covers the whole life exhorting us to walk as he walked. To this St. Augustine pertinently remarks that when Jesus was nailed to the cross, he still walked, for the path in which he trod was love. us in cruce erat et in ipsa via ambulabat. Ipsa est via caritatis. Jesus reigns from the tree, and the secret of his scepter's sway over the hearts of men is his suffering. End of section six.